Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Fish. We have a very exciting guest on this week. Yes. Is it Andy? It's not Andy. Oh. Yeah, no. Andy is still a guest. We consider him a guest of the show. <laughs> um, but no, uh, he was busy this week. I so. suppose what I'm saying is Andy isn't here. Yeah, that's that's effectively. Um, but I still I'm, I feel the guest thing. Uh, we No, very excitingly, we have the founder of QI, uh, John Lloyd himself. He's He's been on a few times. Um, this is the guy who gave us Not the Nine O'Clock News, Blackadder, Spitting Image. He helped create Mr. Bean, co-wrote two of the original radio episodes of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yes, he exec produced our short-lived television show, No Such Thing as the News. Which he says is the highlight of his career. I don't know if he means the ending of it or the experience itself, but uh, he's now turned himself into a music manager. Uh, the band that he looks after is called Waiting for Smith. And if you hang out, listener, to the end of this episode, we're actually going to play a track from uh, Waiting for Smith, their latest single. I'll be single. honest, you don't have to listen to it all. You can fast forward the whole episode <laughs> and just get straight to the song. <laughs> no, no. Experience the show without our guest Andy and see <laughs> see how it feels and, and give us feedback on what you think. Um, anyway, he was a fantastic guest. It's always amazing to get Lloydie on the show and uh, have a listen at the end. And uh, yeah, enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with James Harkin, Anna Chazinski, and Chief Gnome John Lloyd. And once again, we have gathered round the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, John. Right. Well, my fact is that when the Greek government put a tax on swimming pools in 2008, only 324 Athenians admitted to having one. A search by Google Earth, however, revealed the actual number, 16,974. <laughs> it's incredible. It's barefaced, isn't it? <laughs> According to the IMF, more than half of all Greek households pay no income tax at all. Wow. Uh, and Greece has got the largest black market in the whole Eurozone, accounting for 21.5% of its GDP. <laughs> um, there's a reason for this, I believe. I was, when I was in Greece uh, last year, Somebody explained why this is, why the Greeks are so poor at paying their taxes. Because for a thousand years, they were part of the Ottoman Empire, which they absolutely hated. And it was considered a patriotic national duty not to pay mm. your taxes. So well, and they just haven't that. caught up with the history that the Ottoman Empire <laughs> fell apart a hundred years ago. <laughs> I think there are some traditions that you really want to bring back immediately and maybe paying tax is not one of them. Yeah. <laughs> maybe that's a bit lower down on the list. You're right. I, um, I love these pools because it feels as if they were prepared for this Google Earth search. Because they all hide them with camouflage. How do you hide a pool? Okay, so they have um, floating tiles that they put on the top That's of their pool. very clever. Yep, they have army nets, so they camouflage it all together. <laughs> and um, some even paint the interior of their pools to mimic grass. Wow. That's yeah. oh, brilliant. It's extraordinary. So the first Google Earth search said, no swimming pools, but an extraordinary number of army nets in people's <laughs> garden for no apparent reason. Uh, the Greeks have a really good history of paying tax, though, because in ancient Greek, they had a really good system of paying tax. And that is that the assembly in Athens would pick the richest people to pay tax. 
uh, the top 300 in some cases. And they would just say, you have to pay for this parade and this battleship and this whatever. Really? And they all agreed. They even competed to spend as much money as possible because it was a real kind of thing where you would get respect from people and gratitude. And if you were one of the people who pay tax, it really increased your standing in the community and people really liked you for it. So everyone wanted to pay tax. Everyone wanted to be in that 300. I wonder if you got your name stamped on the event as well, like the Livius Parade. You did, yeah. The more you paid, the more likely you were to get your name on something. So this is kind of like those philanthropists who, I don't know if we mentioned uh, after Notre Dame burned down, the philanthropists who really wanted to donate millions and then it turned out they kind of only wanted to do it if the bell was renamed, (laughs) you know, the X person will remain nameless bell. Trump bell. Or the IKEA wing of Notre Dame. (laughs) (laughs) They're not the uh, worst taxpayers in the world, the Greeks, though. The Chinese, only 2% of Chinese pay any income tax, and in Mm -hmm. Pakistan it's 1%. I mean, you wonder how these countries operate. Especially Mm -hmm. China, which operates entirely uh, as government. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I suppose it's just hard to get into those hard-to-reach spots, isn't it? We've all had that itch on our back that we just can't quite get to. I was was kind of nervous researching this topic because my Google searches were like, amazing tax dodgers and we're coming up to the end of the tax year <laughs> but um I, I find tax dodgers quite fun the way that people got again a- researching them right researching them uh, just uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's my accountant there Jimmy. <laughs> um yeah no um uh, early england taxes like the 1700s there were so many great ways that people tried to get around all the taxes that were being thrown at them so um there was tax on bricks for example in houses so one of the dodgers that they used to do was People just used to use bigger bricks, so you use less oh, brick really? per house. That's yeah, a great idea. You could just use four bricks, one bricks. for each wall. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then they caught onto that, so uh, they eventually taxed big bricks as well. Did, Did it yeah. by weight? That, that's actually a bit like with cheese. You know, the origin of big cheese wheels is based on the fact that cheese used to be taxed by number of cheeses in Switzerland rather than by weight. Is that and right? so people would just make bigger and bigger giant cheeses, and that's oh. why we have them. And now the average Emmental is three feet diameter and weighs 220 pounds and uses one and a half tons of milk because it just gets the same amount of tax as a, a mini one. As a mini baby bell. A baby bell, yeah. <laughs> um, I was just looking at the, the quite famous case, the Jaffa cake case on tax. So, you know, there's always this debate the over whether biscuits, yeah. cake, the cakes or biscuits oh, yes. debate. And that originates in 1991, I think it was. And it's because cakes are traditionally in a lot of countries actually are not subject to VAT to sales tax whereas um, biscuits with chocolate on are because cakes were seen as a necessity because it used to be you know your working household would bake a cake but yeah in 1991 McVitie's insisted Jaffa cake was a cake and they so they agreed it had biscuit tendencies but then had to argue overall that it had more cake elements and as part of the like in court as part of the evidence for the fact that it was a cake McVitie's baked a one foot diameter Jaffa cake to show this is actually a cake and the court's Good, and it's been a cake ever since. Oh, cool! Yeah, that is amazing. do you know the difference in cakes and biscuits? How you tell? How do you tell? Because when they go stale, biscuits go soft and cakes go hard. Yeah. Oh, that's. Cool. But they didn't have the time to sit in the court for sort of three weeks <laughs> watching the Jaffa cake go stale. <laughs> this is also actually the case with gingerbread men. So a gingerbread man counts as a cake and counts as a biscuit that's exempt from tax because it's got no chocolate on it uh-huh. until it has a certain amount of chocolate. So if you've got a gingerbread really? man just with eyes but naked, no tax on it. 
but then it'll cost 20% more if it's got one button. No. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) One button on its shirt. Who in their right mind is adding that one button? (laughs) I don't know. These people are missing a trick. It's on the... the, um the people who are best at paying taxes are Americans, strangely enough. Oh, yeah. That slightly surprised me. 81 to 84% of Americans don't cheat on their taxes compared to 68% of Germans and 62% of Italians. Are these self-reported figures? <laughs> <laughs> but, the, you know, it is really shocking, actually, how much tax avoidance goes on. You know, not just Apple and um, Amazon. You know, Amazon has not paid any federal taxes in America, even though it makes profits of, you know, billions. Mm. And there's $8.7 trillion worth of the world's wealth hidden away in tax havens by the rich. Well, that's a lot of money. Mm. Isn't it? It's something like the fifth biggest country in the world if it was a country, isn't it? Um, Something like that. I think the fifth biggest in terms of income. The tax haven country, whatever we're calling that. Where is that? (laughs) Sounds. Sounds great. <laughs> Do we know where it is? It's very wealthy. It's wherever you want it to be, but Dan. The, the UK is, is king of tax havens. I mean, we've got yeah. more than anyone else in the world. Yeah, really? exactly. We talk about Greece and whoever, but, yeah. you know, British, the Cayman Islands belongs to Britain, the Virgin yeah. Islands belongs to Britain. Bermuda. Yeah. Bermuda, yeah. yeah. Isle of Man. Yeah, Channel Islands. Channel Islands. Goes on Fulton. And on. Bolton. Bolton. <laughs> Didn't realise you were tax exempt there. Well, we're a bit like those villages in China. It's very difficult for the tax man to get down to Bolton. Tough itch to scratch, Bolton. Yeah. So one of those um, honest Americans is Warren Buffett, who's been paying income tax since he was 14. Okay. Wow. He had a paper round. Um, and in 1944, he paid tax of $7 on an income of 592 Dollars, which would be equivalent to about eight thousand pounds today. It's a pretty enterprising fourteen-year-old. That's a yeah. lot of newspapers, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And a- another guy who paid seven pound tax <laughs> was the uh, longest-serving prime minister of Pakistan. He was a guy called Nawaz um, Sharif, yeah. who was in office for nine years on three separate occasions. At one point, he had a personal fortune of two billion pounds. But over a period of several years, paid only just seven pounds in tax. Wow, the same. I mean, why, why would he bother to pay any? It's like, <laughs> yeah, this is it. I'm, I'm, I'm fessing up here. Here's your full seven quid back. <laughs> um, shall we say some stuff on um, swimming pools? Yeah, sure. Yeah, let's do that. Um, so, do you know? Name something that you're not allowed to do in a swimming pool. Uh, urinate. urinate. Have a poo. <laughs> Come on. Guys. Are, there, are there any signs on the walls to say you can't do that? No, that's true, which is why I always <laughs> challenge them <laughs> when they attempt to kick okay, me out. Okay, name something that's explicitly told you're not allowed to do on the wall. Oh, petting. 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 That's petting. Yeah. It's not allowed. I mean, who uses that word anymore? Right. Yeah. So Gross. why do they call it heavy petting in the swimming pools? Right? Yeah. Because surely it's just snogging or kissing or whatever, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Well, the reason is in the 1920s in America, they had some things called petting parties. And high school students would go to swimming pools and they would kind of kiss and cuddle and whatever. They would never have sex in there, but they would be getting very, you know, close. And people disapproved. And so they would have signs saying no petting on the swimming pools. And that has kind of kept over for, you know, almost 100 years now. And you still get heavy petting really? um, signs, even though you don't have these parties anymore. But you might have them if they took the signs away. I'm not saying, yeah. So uh, is that what a petting zoo is? <laughs> it is. I had a traumatic childhood, actually, repeatedly taken to those places. <laughs> to a heavy petting zoo. Yeah. Um, they were also, these petting parties, they were also known as necking parties, mushing parties, 
fussing parties and snuggle pupping parties. <laughs> snuggle. So yeah. I really think it should say on the swimming pool, no snuggle pupping. No yeah. snuggle yeah. pupping. Which they won't be because everyone will feel too sick to pet anyone at the phrase <laughs> snuggle pupping. But because there are no signs actually saying no urinating, <laughs> public swimming pools contain up to 20 gallons of urine. Damn. Enough to fill a dustbin. <laughs> and the proportion in hotel jacuzzis is up to three times worse. Whoa! Why are people doing it more in a jacuzzi? I think it's the bubbles make you want to go, don't they? <laughs> Do you think? Uh, well, I think someone knows. But, um. <laughs> um, that study where they found out there was—did you say twenty gallons? Yes. Of urine. Um, it was really clever how they did it because it's quite difficult to work out how much urine there is in a swimming pool because often the chlorine would change it into other compounds or whatever. Mm. But they found a compound in urine that doesn't react with any other chemicals, and that is called acesulfame potassium. And it's a sweetener that you get in lots of like diet drinks and oh, stuff yeah, like yeah. that. Really? And if you put if you urinate that into a swimming pool, nothing can get rid of it, so it'll stay there. So they could take an amount of water and see how much of that was in, and then work out there were twenty gallons of urine from that. Hang on, do, are we all urinating this sweetener? I think they took an average of how much people would. It's in a lot of foods. It's not just in soft drinks. It's okay. in loads of stuff. Um, mm, and that twenty gallons, as well as being a dustbin, it's approximately one hundred and twenty wine bottles worth of urine in each mm. swimming pool. In each swimming pool. And they sell it in Aldi, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> That's a terrible a, slam. Aldi has a really good wine selection. They do. Genuinely, the best. I'm sorry. <laughs> they win all the awards. Did you know this thing that um, another thing they could use, and, and I think they do in some places? Uh, silver has got the curious property of sterilising water, oh. so they could use oh. silver instead of chlorine. That's that would be a only, bit more expensive, though, wouldn't it? But you need only tiny amounts. You oh, need right. only ten parts per billion. Wow. Ten. And it's completely safe. That's great. So in the Olympics, whoever comes second could jump in the pool after the race and then clean the pool for the next race. Yes. <laughs> That's really good. You know when you smell that really strong smell of chlorine in yeah, a pool? I quite yeah. like it, actually. And you think, okay, and you, some you, you get high off it maybe, yeah. or you think there's too much chlorine in this pool. Yeah. Do you know what the problem actually is? My nose is too sensitive. <laughs> no, it's that there's not enough chlorine. Oh, so this really? is, I actually learned this from Dr. Carl wrote this in one of his books, but oh. if it smells too strongly of chlorine, it means they haven't put enough in because the smell that you're smelling is actually when the chlorine reacts with the nitrogen from things like urine and sweat and dead insects and bacteria and stuff. Oh. It combines with it and it makes these chemicals called chloramines. And the smell comes from this particular chemical called trichloramine. So that's very volatile. So you start smelling it. If you add more chlorine, then it keeps reacting and it moves on through the chemical process and the trichloramine nice. goes away. That's wow. incredible. Isn't that That's amazing? Really the smell that I really like is actually dead insects and urine. Mm. That's correct, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that seems true to form, knowing you. <laughs> did you know that Clint Eastwood used to dig swimming pools for a living? I did or not. Was, did he? Or was he yeah. a very enthusiastic grave digger? <laughs> <laughs> he was quite successful, quite young, and he was sacked by Universal Studios because his Adam's apple was too big. What? <laughs> what are you talking what about, do you mean? <laughs> Well, You're testing know, us now, aren't you? That can't, that can't be true. It, it, well, it is true. Um, it, it was on IMDb and on www.clinteastwood.net. Oh, well, there you go. Where I also found <laughs> the Bold fact like <laughs> his name is an anagram of Old West action. It's quite good, isn't That's it? That's really good. Ah. Yeah. Wow. I actually am now thinking of Clint Eastwood and he has a big Adam's apple. Mm. You yeah, can picture it in the old films. not big enough to stop him from digging holes. <laughs> 
Don't, he wasn't sacked from the grave digging. No, no, no he's <laughs> sacked from the movies. Oh, yeah. right. Yeah. And then he had to get another job. You're going to scare the mourners. <laughs> it, it was swimming pools. It wasn't graves. He was, he was, when did the Adam's apple thing come in? I'm sorry, I've lost In the him. 50s. He was, he was fired by Universal. In, that was at the start of his career or the end? Yeah, he'd been in a couple of oh, um, really? sort of B movies. Uh, and then the Adam's apple, they suddenly noticed, hey... <laughs> That guy there. Oh, my God. It was That's when, horrible. It was when they started having 3D movies, didn't it? And people thought they was going to poke them in the eye. <laughs> okay, it's time for fact number two, and that is Chazinski. My fact this week is that some pterosaurs had heads that were more than four times the length of their bodies. <laughs> no. How big was that Adam's apple? <laughs> They are such stupid-looking creatures. So um, the pterosaurs uh, were pterodactyl, is often is often used as kind of a word for the pterosaur. Pterodactyl actually not a thing. The pterodactylus was a type of pterosaur. Oh. Um, but yeah, they were the first flying species, and they started off about 250 million years ago with heads nearly as long as their bodies, and they just extended and extended until you got some pterosaurs like the Quetzalcoatlus, uh, where the heads and the necks were at least triple the length of the torso, so it took up over 75% wow. of their bodies. It feels like if you're a flying animal, having a massive head that's three times bigger than everything else is probably going to be a problem. You just tip yeah. plumb out the sky all the time. Exactly. It's been this real mystery about how they, they figured it out, RE centre of gravity and generally their massive size. And one of the ways that they did it was by having a very light head. So they had these openings in front of their eyes in their skulls called the antorbital fenestra, which is just the window in front of their eyes. And we don't really know what was in it, maybe a gland or muscle. It might have just been a big air cavity. And this sometimes, this huge hole in their skull was so big that it could, in some of them, it could fit their entire torso through it. Whoa. As in they didn't put their torso through wow. it. Mean, what, but... If they stop too fast, would it yeah. shoot out through it? Yes, exactly. <laughs> they literally turn inside out. <laughs> <laughs> like a jumper you have to put back the right way around I yeah it's amazing and also one reason that we know they had very light heads is because the bones were very light right yes so the bones were quite thick in places but there was a big gap of air in the middle and then the actual edges of the bone were like one millimeter thick and that means it's really hard for us to find pterosaur fossils because they just kind of wash away Not or away, they yeah. crumble mm. up and mm. there's hardly any of them in existence yeah I read one article I don't know if this is true of all pterosaurs, but one person said you could put all the fossil material of pterosaurs that we've ever found in one handbag. No. If you were to crush it all up. And that's because it's so thin and so weak. Yeah. Oh, that's and amazing. There's not that many of them yeah. as well. It could be that they were talking about a specific species. I couldn't quite tell from the... Mm. From you the could box. believe that, though, if you powder it all, put it in yeah. a blender. Big, I've seen some big handbags. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's why they check your handbags at the Natural History Museum when you're... That's why. <laughs> in case there's a pterosaur in it. Yeah. Excuse me, sir. Is this all of the fossils of pterosaurs <laughs> we've ever found in history in your handbag? Ah, oh, busted. <laughs> uh, pterosaurs, not dinosaurs. No. I'm sure everyone around this table knew that, but I didn't, so it's worth saying for it's the people weird. at home. Um, yeah, not dinosaurs. And also, birds didn't descend from them, uh, which, again, I think we everyone says birds descended from dinosaurs, and you think, well, it must be the flying type. But, yeah, not at all. Birds descended yeah. from uh, things that could not fly when the dinosaurs were around. It's really amazing, that, isn't it? And I read as well that the largest thing which survived that 
um, attack from a meteorite. Not an attack. It wasn't a meteorite. It wasn't malicious. You make it sound deliberate. (laughs) (laughs) He was just flying through the universe and the Earth got in the way. It's not the meteorite's fault. But the largest thing that would have survived was around 44 pounds. uh, And that today would be about the size of an American beaver. So anything bigger than a beaver would die. Anything smaller than a beaver, some would die, but some would survive. Uh, And the things that turned into birds were not just the small dinosaurs weirdly it was mm-hmm. some of the medium ones that were eating seeds oh, okay? okay because when there's like a nuclear winter because um the meteor hits and nothing can grow the seeds can still live underground and so these little dinosaurs could go and still eat the seeds until everything got better and they were the ones that survived wow. and i wonder if that's i think that's why today like birds which are the things that survive from there are the things that eat seeds Okay, yeah, that's really cool. Um, One thing that's uh, descended from those guys are woodpeckers. Um, Oh, yeah. uh, And I just found what they do with their heads. They bang their heads into trees at speeds of about 15 miles an hour, up to (laughs) 12,000 times a day. Wow. I mean, what must that be like? Yeah. Why don't they get headaches? It's just... We found this out for QI once, and it's... I know they've got a weird tongue, haven't they? Um, Yeah. It wraps around their brain, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I I think they've got... Have they got thick skulls or some kind of padding or something They've got some kind of special brain casing. Yeah. Yeah. It wobbles around in jelly. It is amazing, though, isn't it? Another headbanger is uh, Death Watch beetles, which repeatedly bang their heads on the floor to attract mates. (laughs) <laughs> I've tried that it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> oh no Death Watch Be- that's a metal band Death yes. Watch Beatles mm-hmm. it's a metal tribute Beatles band <laughs> um, I've got some uh, I, I uh, decided to run a search for four times what, what things are four times as much as oh yeah, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. so there's some quite good ones in here so spider's milk but you didn't know there was any but nope. some spiders produce milk and spider's milk contains four times as much protein as cow's milk Wow. Yeah. They're hard to milk, though, aren't they? I reckon, like, you get more from a cow's udder than you do from a spider's yeah. udder. Just going to milk the spiders? I'll be back in <laughs> two months when I've got enough. So, uh, and chimpanzees expend four times as much energy walking on either four or two legs than humans do. Wow. It's really hard for them walking, yeah. Why? I wonder why that is. Exhausting. I don't know. They've got huge upper bodies, haven't they? Yeah, that must be tiring. Yeah. The tea genome is four times longer than the coffee genome. So that's discovered by Chinese geneticists. And this one is astonishing. Almost four times as many people are murdered as are killed in wars. Wow. Isn't that a shock? Yeah, wow. Yeah. I mean, some of us would say that being killed in a war is murder. All right, Jeremy Corbyn. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'll get out. (laughs) Well, we've had a lot of guests today. Jimmy Carr, Jeremy Corbyn. (laughs) Actually, on pterodactyls, they were also a bit hairy, some of them. They had what is called pterofuzz. In <laughs> I found in a thread, in an email thread that I sort of found archived between uh, paleontologists. But yeah, they found hair fibres on some of them. And they also think this might be what helped them be able to fly to do with insulation. But they were sort of fuzzy or fluffy. That's really cool. That's, That's quite cool. cute. But not on the wings. I think just on the bod. Just <laughs> fuzzy bod, bat wings. They were, they were also the babies. You know what they call a baby pterodactyl or pterosaur? Um, no. Flaplings. Aww. Yeah, flaplings. Nice little word. And they were, so they were first identified by a guy called Georges Cuvier. Uh, George Cuvier? George. <laughs> George Cuvier. <laughs> At what stage reading that sentence did you realise you were in did trouble? Did he live in Covent Garden? <laughs> uh, so, Sorry, who was George Cuvier then? 
George's George's Curvier uh, was a he was a scientist, um, and he uh, was the person who discovered or firstly identified the flying uh, pterosaur in eighteen oh nine, and he said that in 1812 he said that they were unlikely we as humans were ever unlikely to find any animal as large as that and then 10 years after he died we <laughs> discovered dinosaurs <laughs> oh. Yeah. Oh, what a shame uh, they he was the first person to say that they flew mm. um, but the first person to describe them in any way scientifically was cosimo collini and he was most famous for being voltaire's secretary yeah oh. so weird isn't that cool isn't yeah. it such a weird two worlds colliding. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> His little hobby. I wonder where he was secretary because Voltaire, um, just down the road from us in Covent Garden... What he used to live there. About? Oh, Voltaire. Yeah. Oh. Mm. I think probably in France, France where he lived most of his life. Okay, yeah. cool. I think uh, Cuvier discovered, you said 1809. I think it was 1801, wasn't it? Yeah, and it's Cuvier. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> he was also, I mean, not only did he see the baby, he was also the person who was the foundation of all Darwin's theories. He yeah. was the person who realised that animals could become extinct. Yeah. Um, I have one last thing before we move on, which is, did you know that there are pterosaurs in the movie Citizen Kane? <laughs> What? So this is really worth checking out. So obviously Citizen Kane held up as one of the greatest movies ever made, Orson Welles. Um, He had an incredible script. He had an incredible uh, cast. What he didn't have was an incredible budget. So for a lot of the movie, they had to reuse certain things from other movies. And there's a scene in the movie, and I've watched it, where they're at some sort of party that's on a beach. And in the background, to show a sort of jungly background, they had to borrow footage from King Kong, uh, or son of King Kong, because they couldn't afford to do it <laughs> oh themselves. My God. Yeah. So in the background, you see these giant pterosaurs flying. No way. No yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. Spoiler alert, that's what Rosebud is. Yeah. <laughs> the name of his pet pterosaur. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's time for fact number three, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that the world's first casino had a rule that you could only gamble if you were wearing a tricorn hat. <laughs> so this was in Venice. Uh, it was in 1638, and it was called Il Ridotto, um, which means the private room. And Ridotto was actually a word which was used for like illegal gambling clubs at the time, uh, but they closed them all down, and everyone was very upset about it. But they said, no, don't worry, we're going to make an official one that you can all go to. Uh, so... By the rules, everyone's allowed to go there. You're all allowed to gamble here. Don't worry, you'll all be able to still gamble. But if you do want to gamble, you're going to have to wear a Tricon hat and a mask. And Tricon hats and masks are extremely expensive. And so actually the poor people couldn't do it anymore. So these were the kind of masquerade masks that you would get, weren't they? exactly. Really sorts out your poker face problem, doesn't it? When you're gambling to have a masquerade mask on. How could they have called anything? I I guess usually they don't cover the lips, do they? They're sort of... So, so no. if, if your tell smirk, is a big pout Because <laughs> they normally do say That your tell is in your eyes not like, Do they? Yeah, not pulling faces with your no, no, with But your the masks, you can see out of the mask You can still see people's eyes Yeah, yeah. you can see it Well, yeah, I didn't know the eyes were the tell I've been looking in the wrong bit <laughs> Looking at the nose Yeah His nose hasn't moved, it's still there yeah. <laughs> the, Talking about the uh, casinos in Italy um, In 1963, Sean Connery I, I just couldn't believe this fact But it, it's, uh, it's there um, he successfully backed the number 17 three times running at the St. Vincent Casino in Italy. Yeah. You've heard that story? Mad, I have yeah. heard the story. I know that to be true in a way. 
Um, but it did happen to be that there was a lot of press there. It was basically a publicity stunt by... No, you think it was a publicity stunt, but I, I, I like to believe it. Yeah. Although he did, he, he put it on 17 twice beforehand and it didn't work, didn't yeah. he? It does seem like he was like, oh, something's going wrong here, guys. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, but yeah, basically most people these days think it was a publicity stunt because it happened to be the week before his movie came out. And he was with all the press and everything like that. I saw, no, so I saw good. a bit of footage the other day, totally unrelated to it, but um, to this to this fact. I just happened to be watching it. Um, I'm convinced it must be a publicity stunt, but I can't see anyone that says it was. M- uh, Muhammad Ali, when he was up against Sonny Liston, he taunted to get the fight and to really get at him. He kept showing up at his house in a bus and yelling through a megaphone at three o'clock in the morning, getting him out of the house, just infuriating him. And mm-hmm. there's footage of Sonny Liston at a table in a casino rolling dice and Muhammad Ali beside him just yelling at him, I'm going to take you down, doing all his <laughs> Ali stuff. And just out of nowhere... Sonny Liston pulls a gun out of his pocket and he fires it at Muhammad Ali. And you see footage of Ali running out and everyone freaking out. And then it turns out that the gun only has blanks in it and he fires a couple of shots into his jacket and then just goes back to rolling dice. (laughs) And everyone's fine with it and it moves on. He must have crapped himself. (laughs) (laughs) I found this uh, great line from Stephen Wright about gambling. In Vegas, I got into a long argument with the man at the roulette wheel over what I considered to be an odd number. <laughs> <laughs> Did um, you know that all the, you know this? You all know the fact that all the numbers on a roulette wheel added up together. No, they add up to six six six. Yeah, it's a bad sign. People should know not to enter casinos. Um, but I, I actually did some research on roulette for this series, the R series, um, and I was reading into the number zero quite heavily. And did you know that zero was banned on roulette tables in this country in the, I think it was the late 60s? Really? Um, yeah, so... It sways the odds too much in favour of the casino. Well, it sways the odds in favour of the casino at all, basically. Mm. So, like, you'll know if you go to a casino today, they all have a zero and they absolutely have to, otherwise a casino wouldn't be able to come off making money because there are 36 numbers and you're given odds of one in 36 but there's this zero on sometimes there's a double zero or a triple zero if you're really being ripped off but yeah in in the 60s in 1967 the law lords like the equivalent of the supreme court decided that they didn't approve of this they thought it was unfair that the casino would have any advantage and they banned zeros from roulette tables wow. and scotland yard policemen would go around casinos and like check for zeros on tables and then close them down if they had them. And how long did that last for? It lasted a year. And then they realised that all casinos were saying, well, we're not going to do business anymore. Uh, (laughs) And people like casinos. And so they changed that law. (laughs) Amazing. Um, I was reading a thing that apparently um, something that's experienced by quite a few casino goers is if they sit down at a slot machine, they'll sometimes sit on quite a damp chair. Um, And Mm. that's because very, very dedicated gamblers who've been playing on a single slot machine for ages and know that if they leave, it might be the next one that wins. Don't go to the toilet. They just go in their trousers. It's a a big thing. Sort of urinated, uh, urine-covered seats is a big problem in casinos. Is it really? Yeah, yeah. It's, well, A big problem? Well, uh, I've never noticed it when I've been to casinos, I must say. But I, I can believe that. I think, wow. do they wear like ad- adult diapers and well, stuff? Well, yeah, there's new products that have been made specifically for casino goers. Uh, it's called Player's Advantage. Um, and, <laughs> yeah, and the idea is it's a diaper that gets you an additional 10 to 12 hours of uh, continuous play. So um, you can put, you know, 
Well, you've got to take a long, hard look at your life, haven't you, when you're buying <laughs> Gambler's Advantage or whatever. Yeah. Um, the roulette wheel, we don't really know who properly invented the modern one, but a lot of people think it was Blaise Pascal, yes, I who's the um, yeah. mathematician, who's like the father of probability, really. Uh, and the idea that a lot of places say, I don't know if this is true, that he was trying to make a perpetual motion machine. Yeah. Um, which would make it a really bad game of roulette, wouldn't it? Very dull. If the ball just goes around <laughs> forever and ever and ever. <laughs> well, the diaper would come in handy in that case. <laughs> okay, it's time for our final fact of the show, and that is my fact. My fact this week is to promote his new product, the inventor of Vaseline would demonstrate his invention by dipping his hands in acid and then healing the burn wounds with the balm. Dedicated to his product. I'd buy it after that. Yeah. Well, How quickly does Vaseline work? So this is... Okay, so um, we've mentioned this guy very briefly uh, ages ago on the podcast. His name is Robert Chesabrew, which... Doesn't, I call him Cheesebra. I yeah. really want to call him Cheesebra. And I, I googled uh, how to pronounce his name a bunch of times, and it came up with Chesabrew. Okay, let's call him Cheesebra. Cheesebra is way better. So, yeah, yeah Robert Cheesebra, um, he patented the balm, Vaseline, in 1872. So he had this new invention. He'd spent 10 years experimenting on himself to see that it would work. But for the time, it was hard to convince people that it had any practical use. So he became one of those traveling salesmen, and he went to department stores all over New York, where he would arrive at the location and do a demonstration. The demonstration consisted of him dipping his hand in acid, or sometimes holding his hand over an open flame, burning himself, and then putting the bomb on, and then showing his other hand that he had done a demonstration on the day before, and how it had healed it up. Yeah, so it was one hand at a time. Oh, wow, so it was the Blue Peter of its day. Exactly. Here's one I made earlier. Exactly. (laughs) There's a lot of trust in that demonstration, though, isn't there? Yes, yeah. Because, I mean, you're trusting that he had done that the day before, and he's not just every single day putting his one withered hand (laughs) in some acid. I bet it was his left hand always that he put in acid, wasn't it? that's true. Yeah, but so he he, uh, did that and used to travel all over. It was real frontline salesmanship um, from old Cheeseborough. He he had a horse and cart, didn't he? And he would give away samples, and apparently this is the first time people gave away samples of any products. Wow, that's a very good I don't know if that's... It doesn't sound true, does it? It sounds like someone else must have thought of it, but this is the first example that we've found. So he used to... uh, Cheeseborough or Cheeseborough, whatever his name is, he... um, used to have a distilled um, sperm whale oil business. So, yeah, and that started becoming redundant because the oil industry became huge. Yeah. And he was basically going bust. And he used his very last few dollars to go to Pennsylvania. And he was going to get a job in the oil industry. And he noticed all these uh, oil workers were always complaining about this stuff called rod wax, which is a black gunk that gooed up the drill heads and then kept having to clean it off. Mm-hmm. And he got curious about this and he took a bucket of it home and he thought, because if they got wounds and burns and cuts and things, they smeared it on it, it seemed to get better. Mm. I don't think it's got healing qualities, actually, but what it does, it keeps the dirt out of it. That's mm. one reason it's good for you. Yeah, yeah. and keeps moisture in, doesn't he it? Was, he was fascinated by it. He took this home and his dad said he spent years and years... Um, experimenting to turn it from this black goo into this very clear, almost translucent balm. Um, and uh, did you know he was a Brit? No, I was thought he? he was American. No, he, he worked in America, but he was actually oh. a Brit. Oh. And Queen Victoria used Vaseline. We don't know why. <laughs> she was a big fan. And she actually knighted him in 1883. But unfortunately, the sword slipped off his shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> 
because he did used to cover himself in it. That's yeah. the one thing that we mentioned, yeah. didn't yeah. we? He thought that it was just this amazing thing that would cure everything. And he mm. thought there was some special stuff in it that would make him better. And he got pleurisy and he covered his whole body in it. And he did actually get better, but probably not because of that. Well, he had a, yeah, I mean, he used to, he, he, he lived to 96 and he got sick in his late 50s. And he, he hired a private nurse who was instructed to rub him down, whole body rub down, in Vaseline every day. Imagine that job. And he, he, ate, <laughs> he ate a spoonful of it literally every day. And that's, he, he attributed his longevity to exactly that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you would if it's your big business, yeah. right? You would, you would say, say that. Yeah. yeah. He was secretly taking a lot of sort of morphine and <laughs> <Yeah>. paracetamol. <laughs> but um, I, I um, dug out some other uses of Vaseline apart from the obvious. Oh, yeah. Um, so it has been smeared on fish hooks to lure trout, treat nappy rash and toenail fungus. It's used for staunching nosebleeds, removing ring marks from furniture. It's dabbed on cheeks by actresses to simulate tears. Removing makeup, protecting gun barrels, shining patent leather shoes, lubricating slide rules. That's a that's a neat <laughs> use. Of Vaseline, that's isn't a it? euphemism for anal sex. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, moustache wax, sunscreen, anti-fouling for boats. It's used by ear, nose, and throat surgeons to combat nasal crusting. Mm, you don't want to get lovely. nasal crusting when you're under the knife, do you? <laughs> no. <laughs> I like the one I really like is um, it's supposedly used in boxing before a fight so that a punch doesn't quite land on your face. It sort of slips <laughs> oh, off. As yeah, you, you, right. yeah. you see them put it on the cheekbones, you do. don't you? Yeah, and they're yeah. not allowed to do it mid-fight. And some people are caught doing it so the coaches will come over and subtly Vaseline their face up. Uh, in American football, you if you're trying to stop someone from getting to your quarterback, you're not allowed to hold them. That's a big thing. You're allowed to block them but not hold them. Yeah. And so people would put Vaseline on their whole bodies so that when you're putting your hands out onto their chest to block them, they just slip away from you. Wow. Um, But the defensive people, they kind of go against it by putting like drawing pins in their gloves and like thumbtacks in their gloves so they can grip on even better. Is that allowed? I don't think it is allowed. Doesn't sound allowed. But I think people still do it. Wow. (laughs) There was John, you're a director. You've done a lot of advert directing, yeah. right? So do you know about the fact that it's used as a technique to make a sort of soft focus yes. effect? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so they smear Vaseline oh, on the yeah. lens of a camera. They say literally that, put some Vaseline on the lens. Yeah, it's really? extraordinary. It's used in a lot of um, softcore porn. Um, you know, uh, you get that sort of thing where it's, it's like a dreamy look yes. around the yeah, face yeah, of the yeah. actress or whatever. Yeah, I can so, imagine. And yeah. I didn't know you had such a strong career in the porn industry before <laughs> yes, you Yes, absolutely. <laughs> he was lubricating slide rules before you were (laughs) (laughs) but um so they use it in star trek for example anytime that captain kirk uh, played by william shatner would see a girl that was going to be the girl of the week as it were um they would use this soft focus on so he goes misty eyed that it looks as if he's gone misty eyed yeah i think i sort of remember that in star trek um and doris day the actress used to have in her contract that close-ups when she got older all had to be done in soft focus because she was too worried about her um, the lines on her face and so on. In any really? close-up, yeah. Ooh. So there's movies with her and Rock Hudson where Rock Hudson is in clear shot as a close-up cut to Doris Day. She's in the street and it looks really odd. That it is looks so like, weird. Yeah. <laughs> 
They also, but, I just found one use on smearing over glass. One use for it related to that, if you're a burglar, was uncovered in 2012 when someone w- went around burgling apartments and people realised that the same, he was doing the same thing every apartment he burgled, which was smearing Vaseline over the opposite apartment's peephole. <gasps> so that when they looked out of their peephole, they couldn't see him. And Very. I don't know why he thought they couldn't open their own doors. Or they thought, who's that dreamy guy? <laughs> <laughs> burgling that house. Harrison Ford would never <laughs> rob a home. <laughs> <laughs> Oddly, you should mention me in commercials and Captain Kirk in the same paragraph, Dan, because <laughs> two of the ads I shot were actually with William Shatner. Oh, really? Yeah, no. in, in L.A. for Kellogg's, yeah. Really? Uh, he was great. He was such a good guy. I got on really well with him. Very, very funny. Really? Hmm. Did he demand the Vaseline for every shot? Um, um, oh, just one interesting thing about Vaseline, something else that it was very important in the invention of was mascara. So modern mascara was invented when a woman called Mabel Williams, uh, this was in 1915, she sort of singed her eyebrows and eyelashes in a kitchen fire and she wanted to make her eyelashes look longer again. And so she came up with this homemade technique of mixing ash and coal with Vaseline um, and then she'd apply it to her eyelashes and, you know, did the trick. Right. Her brother Tom, weirdly, watching on her, watching her, spying on her and decided to try and recreate this and commercialise it. So he used a friend's chemistry set, mixed it all together, oh. made modern mascara and named it after her, named it Maybelline. No, that's Maybelline? That's, that's the original Maybelline. Maybelline. That's really good. Yeah. Wow. Right. That's cool, isn't it? Very cool. So speaking of burns, um, there is one um, thing that's used for treating burns and that is poo shakes. Hmm. Uh, and that is like a milkshake, but it's made with poo. And this is in New South Wales, and it's the Port Macquarie Koala Hospital. Ah. And obviously, they had a lot of fires in Australia recently, and a lot of the koalas got burned. And they found that by feeding them these poo milkshakes, the koalas are getting better a lot quicker. And it's basically your old gut bacteria thing. So um, when you're a baby koala, you eat pap, which is a mixture of digested, half digested food and bacteria. It's created in the mother's gut and um, comes out through the cecum and the joey eats it. And so what they're doing is they're trying to come up with a way of imitating this by making these poo milkshakes. Uh, and they give them to the koalas, and it just helps them to put on weight. It just helps them to get generally better, and that makes the burns heal more quickly. Okay, because mm. it sort of builds up their immune system against yeah. the burns. Yeah. That's treating burns from the inside, which yeah. is such a cool... Inside out. Inside, yeah. My favourite burns, uh, burns-related burns oh, story is, <laughs> is in the 1940s, and scientists wanted to come up with a pain scale. Uh, they wanted to create the pain unit, the dolor, and they decided the way they were going to do this, the way they were going to measure pain and work out the scale, was by taking women in labour and then burning them repeatedly <laughs> and then asking them to compare the sensation of being burned to being in labour. Oh and the women God. were keen to do that. They were like interested. They tended to be the wives of the doctors and the nurses. They were like, yeah, fine, I'm going to be in pain anyway and so they'd have these women who were in labor going through contractions and then they just they just like burn their finger with a lighter and say how bad is that compared to your contraction and the women would be like yeah about it's about the same and then it got worse and worse and they found they said that the problem was that as contractions progressed the women became less good at coherently describing their feelings <laughs> So the researchers had to make inferences about their pain based on their behaviours. Oh, I think that. when she told me to go fuck myself. <laughs> I'll put was... that down as a 10. 
<laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. It's the idea a bit like how, you know, if you have a splinter mm-hmm. and then you break your ankle, you forget about the splinter. Is it that kind of thing? <laughs> it's not that idea. No. The idea was that they thought that going the peak of labour was maximum pain. So that would be max on the scale. And then they wanted uh, the women to sort of quantify, be like, oh, that burn it. is about a tenth as bad as the labour pain I've just felt. Mm. But women got less and less good at perfectly yeah. rationalising that pain. Do you know um, before QI was a thing, they used to have a little email group of six of us that were mm-hmm. in the group and um, we used to have the, this thing called the Quite Boring Challenge. Do you know this story? No. no. And the idea was one of us would nominate every week a subject about which nothing interesting was or could be known. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I started and I nominated Chelmsford because I grew up from near Chelmsford and I spent a week researching Chelmsford. It's a fascinating facts I came up with. Mm-hmm. And... Um, one of them is this, is that largest Burns unit in Europe is in Chelmsford, in Essex. And for 30 years, the Conservative MP for Chelmsford was Simon Burns. <laughs> no way. Okay, yeah, he's, he was knighted in 2015. He's a second cousin of David Bowie, bizarrely. But because he was educated at Worcester College, Oxford, where he got a third... He's known by his friends as Third Degree Burns. Nice. Brilliant. Oh. <laughs> it's amazing when those QI facts come together. <laughs> okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, James. At James Harkin. Anna. You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep. Um, and John, you're not on it either. You're I like don't Anna. I do social media at all. Yeah, no. you too. Copycat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can go to our group account at No Such Thing, or you can go to our website, no such thing as a fish.com. We have everything up there from all of our previous episodes. We have links to our behind the scenes documentary. Um, and uh, actually, before we go, um, we're going to play out with a nice little song because, John, you're now the manager of a band waiting for Smith. Yeah. And uh, we've got their single here. Yeah, so I am the manager. My, my name is Brian Ego. Lovely boy's very talented. <laughs> and their latest single uh, is called So Much Love. Okay, well, we'll see you all again next week. And uh, to play us out now, it's Waiting for Smith with So Much Love. I went on like a domino I've seen things you don't want to know And I've heard of people that never grow my pain, it is a gift I've felt the blood from the offering And I'm ready for death when it comes to me So can't you see? So much love, so much love Feeling in my arms and legs and toes For you, this is so much love, so much love So why won't you let me through? Come on, come on Come on and let me I promise you I will try to keep you feeling light I promise you I will try to keep your wings aflight I promise you I will always, always go speak the truth I promise you that our lives will always feel well used So let the walls tumble down and let the love break in In that last happiness and from there we can begin then let me break down your fears And let the love pour through In that last happiness For me and you So come on and let me through 
So much love, so much love, feeling in my arms and legs and toes for you. So much love, so much love, so why won't you let me through the love? So much love, feeling in my arms and legs and toes for you. So much love, so much love, so why won't you let me through? Come on, come on. Come on, let me through. Come on, come on, come on, let me through. Come on, come on, come on, let me through.